Meet Wes. He's been looking for his podcasting soulmate. Meet Steve. He, too, has been searching for his podcasting soulmate. When these two finally meet, sparks fly, and they can see clearly that they need to talk about movies. This time, they gather in Wes's apartment to talk about Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Why can't I ever fall in love with somebody nice like you? Yeah, well... That's just the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. Then they get neurotic about their relationship while discussing the Woody Allen classic, Annie Hall. Unless I'm one of those guys with saliva dribbling out of his mouth who wanders into a cafeteria with a shopping bag screaming about socialism. Now, from Wes's apartment, this is You the Right Thing. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Yes, welcome. Of Indiana Jaws. View the right thing. It's never going to get old, is it? View the right thing. Well, no, it's not going to get old. It's our new title. No, I mean your Indiana Jaws thing is never going to get old. You know what? You got to fight for what you believe in. You could fight for the right to party instead. I feel like I often have fought for that rot. No, that's not correct. I am tired this morning, Wes. Yeah, I can tell. I can see. I'm drinking a lot of coffee. Yeah. I just took a a nice pill for my headache. Mm. We'll take a drink at the same time. That's good radio right there. So, oh yeah. How how have how has your last week? I was going to say how have your last 2 weeks been, but we did an episode last week's a special episode of Do the Right Thing. So That's true. So how was your last week? It was pretty good. It was very uh chock full of stuff to do. Chock full of nuts. Yeah. Um but you know, wasn't a wasn't a bad week. Yeah. So I guess it was a good week. Yeah, I was happy to see you uh to watch uh the apartment that was fun. The apartment was a blast. Yeah, felt very long. I didn't look at the running time of it. Two hours and five minutes. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Did it feel longer to you? Is that what you thought? A little bit. Really? Yeah. I um, actually thought it went by a lot faster than I remembered, and it okay. was not my first time seeing it. Oh, so. all right. Interesting. You say that because last night I went to the movies. Yeah. Went to one of these nice outdoor screenings that happens all around Los Angeles. Yeah. Watched the Never Ending Story. For probably the, I don't know, 11th time in my life. Sure. And that movie felt much shorter than I remember it being Mm. as a child. And it was still just as sad as it ever was. That that stuff with the horse, man. That is awful. Yeah. That's an awful scene. That's all I can say about it. If you've never seen listeners, viewsters, as I'm going to probably try and call you. Oh, viewsters. I like that. I like that name. Yeah. I, uh, if you've never seen the never-ending story, what are you doing with your life? That's a good question. A great question. Because uh, it's a magical movie. It's got a really fun soundtrack. Yeah. Cool characters. You know, I don't need to sell you on the never-ending story. Story. You either love it or you don't. Or you, you, you either love it or you've never seen it. There you go. Two words for those who haven't seen it. Giant turtle. Giant turtle? Yeah, there's a giant turtle in that movie. Giant sort of dog. 
yeah, that dog thing, that luck dragon. Yeah, luck dragon's cool, but I, I something about street. his like scaly, bubbly skin. The scales are very me. strange. Yeah. They always look like bubbles to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they they look not flat enough for yeah. scales. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Creepy. I, <laughs> I saw uh, I saw straight out of Compton. Talked, I still have not seen that. We talked about that a little bit in um, Do the Right Thing. We mentioned it in Do the Right Thing. Yeah, and now Dr. Dre's getting a lot of heat. Yeah. For um, all of his old... Uh, probably should get a lot of heat for that. Yeah, it's it's rough stuff. Well, and they sort of, you know, <clears throat> they chose which, obviously chose which characters to focus on. In a movie, you can't focus on every character, but... This MC, is true. MC Ren is sort of just discarded for most of the film. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, and obviously the domestic abuse, the domestic violence stuff, they don't, I, e- they don't even cover. Yeah. I hear they don't even like mention it. Like not even like a, a sentence of like, oh, well I'm yeah. dealing with this thing right now or anything. I have mixed feelings about it. Um, yeah. on one hand, I, I totally understand and appreciate what people are, are saying about the movie, um, or about the lack of, um, I guess let's say the revisionist history. Sure. At the same time, as a filmmaker, I understand that you have a message. Like, you know, your your job is to take a story and put your twist on it, right? So, to, like, explain how you see the world through your film. Yeah. And um, if they were to really get into that, um, if, if they just, like, mentioned it and then kind of glossed over it, then people would have a problem with that as well. Right. So that would be just as bad as not mentioning it at all. Yeah, you may be right. So, if you're going to really get into it, you're going to, you absolutely are going to villainize characters in the film. Mm. And while that might be true to history, if you're trying to have a film that's relevant to today's topics, um, police brutality or the militar- militarization of police, yeah. which they show in the film. Um, if, if that's an important thing and a big piece of why you're making the movie, yeah, um, it's hard to tell that story if you villainize the um, the main characters. So I suppose that's true. Um, I, I I'm not condoning one way or the other. I, I'm mm. just saying I understand both sides of the the coin there. Yeah. So, um, but I did think that it was a well made film. I thought cool. the performances were good. Um, I thought the the choices with the camera work were um were interesting mostly invisible which i kind of like all right you know where you don't really feel like you're taken out of the film by artsy shots okay that's good um yeah uh really the performances though the guy that played dre was great Um, cool i thought uh O'Shea Jackson jackson jr was good he played ice cube ice cube played his father in the film yeah, um, I thought the the guy that played Easy E was pretty good. It's interesting. It's the ancillary characters that are actors that I didn't think were very good. Oh, um, so no offense to anyone, um, but for example, the um, the woman who played the mom of Dr. Dre was just so like cliche and over the top, and it just doesn't feel. I mean, you know, maybe it's the writing, but hmm. the performance just feels like just. I've seen this kind of performance from any random woman playing somebody's, you know, mom. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It just felt, it just felt really staged. 
Well, bottom line is I got to check it out. Yeah, you should. Having been a young hip-hop fan, yeah, I got to check it out. So One of these days and one of these crazy, crazy long nights. Should we talk about movies? Well, aren't we talking about movies? We just talked about Straight Outta Compton and Never Ending Story. Those are both movies. Should we talk about two different movies? Sure. Which, you, which two movies do you want to talk about? We watched The Apartment. Yes. And Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. And we advised you, our viewsters, to watch The Apartment and Annie Hall as well. And now we are going to talk about them. Yeah. You want to get into The Apartment? Should we start with The Apartment? I think that was the one we drew first. <clears throat> that sounds about right. And it's chronologically from earlier in history. Yeah, so sure. there's also that. There is that. Um, also, when we get to the Muppet Bucket... Yeah? Remind me, I need to talk to you about Dune before we draw anything. Uh-oh. Now, there's nothing bad. It's just a clarification that I need I need you to make. Okay. Why don't we just talk about that right now? Okay. When when Dune gets drawn... Yes. We have a, an agreement that we are going to watch our two movies. If we draw Dune, our two movies will be Dune and Hodorowsky's Dune. Yes. The documentary. One, which of those two do we watch first? Do we watch the documentary about it first, or do we watch the movie first? Well, here's the thing. Absolutely everybody that I know that has ever watched Hodorowsky's Dune Mm -hmm. has already seen Dune first. Yeah. Because that was the only way it was possible. As as somebody that's reluctant to watch Dune, do you think I would enjoy Dune more if I had seen Hodorowsky's Dune first? Maybe. I, I literally have no way of knowing. Because I don't know anybody that has seen Hodorowsky's Dune without having already seen well, Dune because it's should, 31 years old. Maybe we should do it that way then since you don't know anyone. So you'll be the experiment. I'll be the experiment. You'll be guinea my guinea pig. So that's not really the real question I have for you about Okay. It. What if Dune gets drawn as the second film? Then we scrap the first one. We put the first one back in the bucket? Or, yes. Or do we put Dune back in the bucket until you draw Dune? No. Because <laughs> you're really excited to watch Dune. I want to watch Dune. I want to watch Hodorowsky's Dune. All right. I'll and agree And if we make it so that I'm the only person who draws Dune is the only way we watch it, that's going to drastically reduce our chances of ever getting to Why, Dune. Because you want it so much. Because I have terrible, terrible, terrible luck when it comes to random <laughs> drawings. Okay. Well, I'll agree to that. That's fine. So if we draw one movie and then you draw the Dune, Hodorowsky's Dune one-two punch... We scrap the first movie. We watch okay. Dune. Dune. Okay. And Hodorowsky's Dune, of course. And then we get people all excited for one movie and then be like, oh, sorry, we just scrapped it, guys. Poor well, views, poor beasters. we'll bump that movie to the next episode automatically. Yeah, we'll see. So, like, if I draw The Apartment and then you draw Hodorowsky's Dune, we bump The Apartment and then we do Dune. And then after we watch Dune, we only have to draw one more thing because we're already watching The Apartment. Sure. Well, we watched The Apartment. We've already watched The Apartment, so you're in luck, America. So let's talk about that. Yes, please. So, I left uh, all my notes downstairs. Anyway, keep going. I'll remember them as we talk. It's a film from... Are you, you're going to need those notes later for Annie Hall, won't you? I have my Annie Hall notes in my phone. My apartment notes are on paper. Gotcha. So this is a film made in 1961. <clears throat> it's a Billy Wilder film. We watched another Billy Wilder movie. Sunset Billy Wilder Vard. Sun, yes, Sunset Billy Wilder Vard. Pretty good movie. Yeah. And, uh, well, real quick, which one did you like better so far? Sunset Boulevard or The Apartment? 
I mean, the apartment's definitely kind of lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I don't know if I can really pick. I might lean towards Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Just because the performance in that is just so engaging. That's true. Yeah. You're looking around. You hear the kids outside, don't you? Is that what that is? Yeah, there's probably a baseball game going on at the oh, baseball field across the street. sounded like a family of hawks. No, I don't think so. There's <clears> people <throat> cheering. Okay, so uh, 1961, Billy Wilder, Jack Lemon. Yeah, as C.C. Baxter. Jack Lemon. Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray. The guy from My Favorite Martian. Yeah. I can never remember his name. Why can I yeah. never remember his name? You recognize him, though, when you see him. I mean, yeah, like... he, he plays one of the guys who's picking on Jack Lemon. It seems like you, like my entire experience seeing this guy, uh, the guy you're talking about. Yeah. The guy who played Mr. Tobish. Yes. Yeah. Um, I've only, I feel like I've only seen him as an old man, and this is the youngest I feel like I've seen him in. I can fully agree with that. Yeah. So this was uh, the last film that was black and white to win Best Picture. Really? The Academy Awards until The Artist. Holy shnikes. That's 50 years. 50 years for another movie, to another black and white film to win. However. Wow. Schindler's List was partially black and white, mostly black and white. But Um... it wasn't completely black and white, so it doesn't count as a black and white film. That's true. And then what about Sin City? Sin City did not win an Academy Award. For You're kidding Sin City. me. No, I'm, honestly. Well, I got to look back through time. Okay. Well, you look through your portal in time. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll explain <laughs> what happened in the All apartment. Right. So Jack Lemmon, as you said, plays C.C. Baxter. Yes. He's a statistical analyst in a, a national insurance company, a big company. Yeah, huge company. And he works in this this kind of massive work area. They show us this like really beautiful kind of shot of just rows and rows and rows of people and working rows. at de- and rows of people working at desks with their typewriters and they're adding machines and stuff. And um, and it's kind of simultaneously a work of art and it's kind of depressing at the same time. Yeah. It's, uh, what do they call that? A, a just a big office pool, like a in an office pool. Like yeah, a, it's like, like the, a typist the pool or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 impressive. Yeah. So you see this kind of grid like pattern with all the desks and all the workers, and it goes on and on and on. And somehow you kind of can see the faces of everybody. Everybody's kind of clear. Nobody's really blocking anyone else. Yeah. Part of it is the high angle that they shot the that they, they did that shot. Um. And the other part of that is Billy Wilder cast dwarves in that scene. Really? So he put um, non-dwarves. What's the PC term? I don't want to say normal Little height. Little people. Well, but I don't want to say normal height people because for dwarves, that is uh, their normal height. If I'm not mistaken, little people like little people. And then I think they would refer to non-little people like us as average Okay, I so, think. So they put the average height, I guess that makes sense, the average height people with normal-sized desks in the foreground, and as it goes back to sort of simulate how, making it look like the the room really goes far back, yeah. they put dwarves and smaller desks in the back to make it wow. look like they're really far away. 
And you never you never even thought about it. Never right? thought about yeah. that. It's just a big beautiful shot that made me go, I don't ever want to work in a room like that ever. Yeah. Unless I'm acting in that room. Yeah. And it made it made essentially a sound stage look a lot bigger than it really was. Heck yeah. So we we get uh, some narration from Baxter and he tells us that he often works late. But it's not because he's ambitious. It's because he can't go home till much later. Right. Um, a while back, we learned this a little bit later in the film, but a while back, he lends his apartment key to a coworker uh, because he needs to change his clothes on the fly like while he's out and about. And the word got about this sort of generosity got out amongst other coworkers. And before he knew it, he was being used and kind of taken advantage of by different uh, executives, four different executives. Yeah. And they would schedule out his apartment so they could have a place to bring their mistresses so their wives wouldn't know. Yep. There and are many mistresses. Many, I think and, it's safe to point out. And it was it's quite an ordeal for Baxter. We get to see him, you know, make calls to each of the men when he wants to switch nights. When he's like, I need a, a night for myself so I can get some rest. Right. I need you to move your Wednesday to Thursday. And then he has to call someone else who has Thursday to... Friday and that person Friday to the next two, whatever. So he, you know, it's, it's quite an ordeal for him. Yeah. It's almost like an extra job. Yeah. So, so what happened was he went home to his apartment one night and Mr. Kirkby. Kirkby. Yeah. Kirkby was late getting his regular girl, Sylvie out of the apartment. Mm -hmm. So Baxter waits outside and he kind of looks up at the light, um, in the apartment. And it's interesting because he's looking at his own apartment and he's kind of like irritated, just, the visual of his own, a light on in his own apartment is irritating to him. Yeah. So he stands out in the rain. Um, it's cold and it's raining. And, and when Kirkby eventually comes out, um, Baxter kind of hides next to the stoop. So he's not seen by the coworkers. Because we later learn that Sylvie uh, works in the telephone operator pool. Yes. So she, so she would possibly know Baxter. Works down there on the switchboard, see? <laughs> yeah. So... Um, as he's hiding, he hears Kirkby and Sylvie talking, and she asks him, do you take other girls here? And he's like, certainly not. I'm a happily married man. Yeah. <laughs> and it kind of sets the tone for the men who we see cheating. They don't really seem to think that they're doing anything wrong. Right. So Baxter goes into his apartment to clean up and get some rest. Um, we meet the woman next door and her husband, Dr. Dreyfus, Dr. and Mrs. Dreyfus. Oh, Yes. They seem to think that Baxter is the one they constantly hear through the walls with various women. And they think that he's a sex pot and partying constantly. <laughs> so a Bax sex pot. Baxter tries to get some sleep and he gets a call from another manage, man, manage, another man, manager, yeah, Mr. Dobish. And Mr. Dobish says he's got a girl in a bar who wants to go home with him who looks and sounds just like Marilyn Monroe. Right. And he needs the apartment ASAP. Now, it's interesting because um, Billy Wilder worked with Marilyn Monroe twice before this. Oh, yeah? One of which is in our bucket, Some Like It Hot. All right. Apparently, Marilyn Monroe um, was very demanding on set. Oh. And he was kind of irritated and um, angered by this. Sure. So he he wrote this specific part to be a Marilyn Monroe. Nice. Um this sort of floozy to be a Marilyn Monroe lookalike. And she definitely sounded like Marilyn. I would say so, yes. Didn't really look like that, like her that much. Not a whole lot. The blonde hair, the mole. Yeah. 
that was about it. So Baxter, of course, is is like, you know, I I can't. I need to get some sleep. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, that kind of thing. And Dobish basically says, if you want this promotion, then you're going to do what's good for you. Right. So, So Baxter goes outside, and he's outside when Dobish and the girl come in. And he even, you know, he he tells the girl that it's his mother's apartment. Right. Dobish tells the girl it's his mother's apartment. And she's like, you know, are you sure your mother won't mind? And he's like, not if she wants that promotion. Right, yeah. So essentially or saying, not if she, no, if she minds, she's out of a job. That's yeah, something like along those lines, right? Yeah. So. Creep. Just another, uh, another example of um, sort of the, the vice that they have Baxter in. Yeah. So. Baxter ends up going in the middle of the night to Central Park and sits down on a bench in the cold rain and he sleeps most of the night there and um, he gets a cold. As one would in such a situation. But when he gets to work he finds that it looks like the promotion is going to go through. Yes. And who points out that he has a cold when he gets to work that day? That would be Fran Kubelik. Fran Kubelik. Fran. That's a fun name to say. Kubelik, I think it's Kublik. I thought it was Kulik at first because they would say her name so fast. Yeah. So I had to look up the spelling of it. Kublik. Played by uh, Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine. She's this bubbly, um, kind of witty elevator girl with her little gloves on. And the way she pushes the buttons is so exact with like a, like a really like a turn of the wrist and a flourish. Yeah. She kind of turns and pushes the buttons. And when uh, Mr. Kirkby gives her a little uh, goose on the butt, right? Um, she she calls him out for it even, and uh, suggests maybe one of these days she she won't be so careful with the elevator doors and yeah. lose a hand, get his hand caught and, yeah. and severed. So Baxter gets called up to go see Mr. Sheldrake on the twenty seventh floor. Yes. So he goes from the 19th floor to the 27th floor. 27 floors. Of course, takes his usual elevator manned by Fran. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's clear that he's got eyes for this woman. He's, uh, smitten? He's definitely smitten. Yes, smitten. And he explains to her that he's going up there and he thinks he's going to get a promotion. And so she takes her flower that she, she wears every day. She wears a flower. And she puts it in his suit jacket for luck. So he goes in and meets with Mr. Sheldrake, and Mr. Sheldrake looks over some reports and says that Baxter seems to be really well-loved by various managers. Yep, works a lot of overtime with no overtime pay. Different branch managers, yeah. Everybody loves him. And then he lets him in on he knows why. Now, previously, when they had a situation like this, it was somebody running an illegal illegal bookie situation. Sports gambling. But he's heard that there's this rumor of this key floating around mm-hmm. this apartment key. And so we we think that there's no way that Baxter's going to get this promotion that because the guy's played by Fred McMurray. It's like he's, he's like, America's dad. Yeah, he's like the shaggy dog and wasn't he the original absent-minded professor? Yeah. Was and, he the shaggy dog? I think so. Yeah. Wait, no. He might have been in it, but wasn't the shaggy dog a kid that became a dog? Yeah, maybe you're right. Or like kind of a young, you know, yeah, yeah, a, right. a high teenager or something. You're right. But Very he was the absent for Flubber. Yes, the he was. Professor. And he was the dad from My Three, my sons. three sons. So, yeah. And so here, he's, all of a sudden, he's like, an adulterer. I want the key. Yeah. I, 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 I want the key. Let him ask it again. 
<laughs> so uh, he tells Sheldrick that he wants access to the key, but he wants exclusive access to the key. Yes. But Baxter is going to get this promotion and his own office. Booyah. So, of course, Baxter agrees. And uh, so as to not seem so shady, they exchange the key for a pair of tickets to a Broadway show. Do you remember which Broadway show? The Music Man, the music of course. Man, of course. So the Music Man had uh, had become very big in like 1958. All right, um, won a Tony Award, and so it was it was the big deal back in that time period. I would say so. So later that night, after work, Baxter asks Fran to go with him to this Broadway show. Yes, and she says she can't because she has to go meet an old boyfriend for a drink, just one drink. But you know, she agreed she'd meet him, so she's going to go see what what he's up to quite the coincidence so after a little conversing she decides well your show doesn't start till 8 30 mm-hmm. so i can meet you in the lobby and um I'll, I'll have my drink and i'll go meet with you and it'll all be good and so baxter's like super ecstatic over this even though he's sick he's super ecstatic right i would say fran has like breathed new life into him because he's actually Absolutely. battling his cold rather well at the time of yeah, asking her on this date, and there's there's some funny gags with uh, <clears throat> with the nose spray. He's got this like nose oh, yeah. spray where <laughs> yeah. he, you know, when Sheldrake confronts him, he he squeezes it a little too hard. And you see it shoot out. <laughs> yeah, and then That's as funny. Fran walks away after she's agreed to go on this date with him, he uh, he gives his little flower a, a couple squirts. Yeah, that um, because the movie is black and white, normally saline wouldn't show up on on screen. So, okay. Um, Jack Lemmon, um, when he was off camera, realized that if he squeezed that thing really hard, it would shoot out really like 10 feet. All right. So he replaced the liquid in it with milk so it would show up on black and white. Nice. And, uh, and so that was kind of his idea to, to do those little. That's damn funny. Way to go, Jack Lemmon. Yeah, right? Rest in peace. Rest in peace indeed. So Fran goes to go meet with her ex-boyfriend. She goes to a little booth in the back of a Chinese restaurant to meet her ex Mr. Sheldrake. Mr. Sheldrake? The guy who runs Baxter's company? Yep, that's the guy. Oh. So he wants he wants her back. Sure does. He's like, baby, I need you. I miss you. Uh, I, uh, I swear I'm, I'm going to divorce my wife. Uh-huh. I've been looking into it. I've been talking to a lawyer. Yeah, right. Fran doesn't believe him, but clearly wants to believe him. So he convinces her that he's not a bad guy and gets her to admit that, that she still loves him. Yeah. So he convinces her to stand up, whatever her date is after this. Right. And they go to Baxter's apartment, leaving Baxter stood up and sad. And of course, on the way out of the restaurant, Sheldrake's secretary. Sees yeah, them. that's right, huh? What was her name? Miss Olson. Olson. I think. I think it was Olson. Sure. Either way, my point is... Okay. She had those blonde, that blonde hair and those cat-eye glasses that, that got you your engine revving. All right. I mean, she was attractive without the cat-eye glasses, too, I'm sure. sure. But Miss Olson. So the next day at work... Yeah. Baxter goes to Sheldrake and gives him a small compact, like a, like a makeup compact. Oh, that's right, that, that he was, found in his apartment. In his apartment. 
Yeah. And he comments that there's a crack in the mirror, but it was there when he found it. He assures him it was there when he found it. And Sheldrake says, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, the girl, she, a girl threw it at me once. Right. And he sort of, he sort of like opines like, you see a girl a couple times a week just for laughs, and right away they think you're going to divorce your wife. Oh, boy. And he's like, now is that fair? Right. And Baxter goes, no, it's it's very unfair, especially to your wife. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I remember is, laughing pretty good at that one. Yeah, which is one of my favorite lines. Um, I really like that, that moment. Yeah, and I don't even know if McMurray, or, well, Sheldrake, Sheldrake even picks up on that. realized that he was being... Insulted quite handily there. No, because again, the the um, the the cheaters in this all feel like they're doing something that's okay, right? You know, so they don't understand why someone would be throwing stuff at them. Yep. So a few weeks later, there's this huge Christmas party. People are dancing on desks. They're making out in hallways and empty offices. It's kind of crazy. The people are definitely drinking a lot. Oh yeah. So I need to take a break from the movie here and ask some questions. Okay. I guess I've never worked for a big company like like this. All right. So I've never had the opportunity to witness it, but you see scenes in movies all the time that take place at Christmas yeah. where people are getting way too drunk and they're hooking up with their coworkers left and right. Yeah. It, it happens in Die Hard even. This happens in this movie. Just a whole bunch of movies. So the question is, does this really happen? I don't know for sure. I mean, uh, I don't either. I mean, like, I've had, I've never really had an office-y kind of office job. Not one like this. No, I once cleaned offices for a living in my late teens. Yeah. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true of all offices. They look for any excuse to bring in a big cake and have it in the conference room. That's true. And then leave more than half of it behind after making a huge mess of the conference room. Sure. And then, uh, so I'd usually have a slice of cake every night when I got to and work. And clean it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that was my job. I was like, hey, if they're just going to leave this cake here, I'm having a slice of it. Nice. And then I'd fridge the rest in case somebody wanted to come get it in the morning. And But I never saw any evidence of uh, drinking, and I certainly never saw any evidence of, uh, you know, worker on worker making out. Worker on worker. Okay. So I guess Viewsters. Viewsters. If you've got a big office job. And you've, you've ever seen this, or experienced this, or, or taken part in this. Yeah. If you've ever hooked up with a coworker at a Christmas party. Yeah. Or watched someone else do it, or... Uh, uh, Danced on a desk in a yeah. in a row of other dancers on one If it just got crazy. Uh, let us know. Yes, tweet, tweet us. us about your crazy office parties. They should tweet you at... Movie Hippo. And they should tweet me at Stephen Nohowood. What if they tweet at No Lag Gamers? They could tweet at No Lag Gamers as well. Cool. We don't have as many followers there. That's okay. Yeah. This uh, is an opportunity to build. Sure. And tweet. So that Christmas party was out of control. Was out of control. Billy Wilder actually shot that um, on December 23rd, right at Christmas time. Yeah. And so he basically threw a Christmas party for the cast and crew. Nice. And uh, and then he just kind of sat back and just shot it. And they got almost everything they needed in one take. Wow. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So anyways, Baxter has gotten over being stood up by Fran. Yes. And he goes over to her elevator and convinces her to join the party. He gets her. A dr- he goes to get her a drink and leaves her alone. And Sheldrake's secretary confronts Fran. And the secretary tells her about each of the girls Sheldrake duped before Fran. Right. Including herself. Right. 
She even explains how he tells all the girls the same story, always about divorcing the wife, mm-hmm. always in the back booth at the Chinese restaurant. So just really like everything that Fran thinks is special about her relationship with Shell Drake, she learns that he's done this to. He's had the same relationship with girl after girl after girl. Yeah. I think she points out that Fran's like the fifth of these girls. Yeah, I think think roughly. Maybe the fourth, but I think the fifth. So Baxter shows up with the drink, and they move to his office so they can speak better and hear each other better. Um, He's kind of oblivious to the fact that Fran is upset, um, that she's gotten really sad. Yeah. Um, and he's like, hey, you know what we should do is we should we should get you a better job here at the company. We should get you a promotion. And she's like, no, nah, nobody would want to, you know, I don't have that kind of juice. And, yeah. And he's like, he, I can help because I know people. And then he shows her uh, the Christmas card that Mr. Sheldrake, his boss, who's, you know, obviously pretty high up in the company. Right. Had given him. And so she sees Sheldrake, the Sheldrake family, all very happy in front of their Christmas tree, um, which just kind of, I think, digs the, the wound a little deeper. I would say so. So he goes on and on about this, like, you know, his his new promotion and how he's a big shot now and how he bought this new hat. And it's the executive, junior executive model, I think is he call, what he calls it. Yeah. It's basically what, a bowler hat, right? A bowler hat, yeah. So he's, like, trying it on and, like, putting it to one side. And he's asking if it's good and if it looks good. And so she hands him um, a small compact mirror for him That's to check. Right. And he opens it. And he sees the crack running through it, and he knows that she's the girl. The girl that was in his... Pro, she probably has had sex on his bed. With another man. With another man. So then comes my favorite exchange in the entire movie. Yeah? It's my favorite moment of the whole film. And it's it's sad, but I love it because it says a lot with characters who are trying not to say much to each other. Yeah. And Baxter says... The mirror, it's broken. And she replies, yes, I know. I like it that way. It makes me look how I feel. kind of want to cry. I kind of do want to cry. It's um, sweet, friend. One of the most heartbreaking lines I think I've I've heard in a movie. It's, It's amazing. So I can't think of a more heartbreaking line than that. Yeah. I mean, it's that's that's brutal. That's brutal because it's not somebody saying it to her it's her saying it about herself you know yeah for me well this movie uh uh i noticed that there were some similarities between this and uh almost famous hmm. and uh it just occurred to me there's a very heartbreaking line in almost famous yeah when uh the kid i always can remember his real name not his character name and he tells her um you know those guys just traded you to humble pie for like something or other and a case of beer and you know poor uh penny lane she's like she's crying she's welling up she's getting very very sad and then she looks at the kid and then she says what kind of beer and that's that's pretty heartbreaking too because it's like sure she's trying to make a joke but she realizes like just how how low she's kind of sunk into this world right oh penny lane you're in my ears and in my eyes (laughs) so so christmas eve Hits and Sheldrake takes um, the distraught Fran yeah. to the apartment, and Baxter goes to on some, Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, he's a monster. Yeah, so Baxter goes to uh, a bar, mm-hmm. just completely depressed. And there's actually some really funny, uh, subtle 
physical comedy. It's not like it's not like slapstick. It's it's just timing. Yeah. And uh, and he meets this other woman there, um, played by Hope Holiday. Yeah, she's Mrs. Mrs. McSomething. Uh, I only have the IMDb right in front of me. I suppose I could look at that real quick. Uh, Hope Holiday plays Mrs. Marjorie. Mrs. Margie McDougal. That's who she plays. Right. And so she is lovely. Mrs. McDougal is sad because her man is in Cuba. Um, Fidel Castro has locked up her, her, her husband. husband. Yeah. Mickey McDougal. I could, yeah. I couldn't remember if it was her husband or her boyfriend. So her husband, because he's a jockey, he's like five foot two. I think she says. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, (laughs) and he was caught doping a horse in Cuba. Yeah. So Castro has locked him in prison and she sent a letter asking for him to be let out. But of course, Castro didn't respond. So she's mad about that. I also want to point out, she tries to get Baxter's attention by firing uh, straw papers at him. Straw wrappers, yeah. And she is an absolute sniper with those things. Yeah. Because she seems to be firing them from well across the bar. I'd say easily 10 feet. Maybe. Yeah. And she manages to hit the brim of his hat or his face darn near every time. I've yeah. never seen straw paper fired so accurately. And, of course, he's oblivious to it. He just, he's in his own world. So yeah. notice it. Making his little circle of olives. Little circle of olives, that's right. Martini after martini for that guy. So while he's there with Hope, no, Hope Holiday. Well, that's her real name. Right. Mrs. McDougal. Mrs. McDougal, Margie. Uh, Sheldrake takes Fran to the apartment, and she is just bawling her eyes out, mascara Mm -hmm. running. And she she actually makes a comment about um, never wear mascara when you're with a married man. Oh. it's It's a rule. I don't remember hearing that one. Yeah, because she's just got black running down her face. Right. And Sheldrake doesn't really seem to understand, and so she eventually, you know, she explains to Sheldrake that the secretary came up and approached her and told her about all the other girls. Yeah. And uh, and he tells Fran it's not just it's not so easy just to up and leave your wife. Like, yeah, I've been looking into the divorce, but I can't, I can't do it at Christmas. You know, there's yeah. Thanksgiving and then there's Christmas and then there's Valentine's day. And then, the, then there's the kids, this thing and the kids, this thing. And so he sort of, and then the in-laws are coming. So right. he basically, you know, runs off this list of why he can't divorce her right away. Yep. He's always got an excuse, but now they've been dealing with this crying thing for so long that it's too late for them to do anything, and he's got to go. So he explains he didn't have time to go shopping for her. Right. And he gives her $100 and says, go buy something nice for yourself. A $100 bill. And then he does what I think is the most dickish thing. All right. He picks up the presents for the family he did have time to buy stuff for. Ooh. Right? So he's like, I didn't have time to, to get you anything. And then he picks up all these wrapped presents yeah. for his family. What a creepy bastard. The people he did have time for. And then he leaves her in the apartment so he can go catch his train. Well, she uh, starts taking her clothes off and she says something like, uh, well, I figured if you're going to pay me for it, we might as well do this then or something and like that. he's like, don't, don't talk like that. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't be cheap or something creepy. Yeah. yeah. He's a creep, that Sheldrake. So Fran goes to wash her face in the bathroom. She does. And she finds Baxter's sleeping pills. Yes. And at first she puts them back. But after that hesitation, just as the scene's ending, we actually see her take a glass and fill it with water. Pretty safe to assume what she's about to do. So Baxter comes home with the flighty woman, who's also sad. Mrs. Marjorie McDougal. Yeah. 
When they get there, Baxter discovers Fran is unconscious on his bed with an empty prescription bottle. So he goes to get Dr. Dreyfus from next door, and he kicks the woman out that he brought home. He kicks yeah. uh, Margie out. Sweet, sweet Margie McDougal. Who, can I point out yeah. that she is, she's going on and on about her husband who's in jail in Cuba and how crazy she is about him. But it is literally her idea to go back to Baxter's apartment and cheat on her husband. Well, they do have a, uh, they, she has this conversation with him in the bar about how there's something, it's sad to be alone, but yeah. there's something extra sad about being alone in your apartment on Christmas. All right. And he he makes the comment. He says, um, I, I'm alone, but I didn't say my apartment was empty. Oh, right, right. That's true. So Poor Baxter and Matt, Margie. Yeah. So Dr. Dreyfus comes over and uh, and Baxter kicks Margie out. And Dreyfus forces Fran to throw up. Oh, yeah. Slaps her around. Another actually, similarity to Almost Famous. Yeah. They do a stomach pump scene in there. Yeah. Um, it's actually kind of shocking when he starts smacking her in the face. Yeah. Because <laughs> it looks pretty real. I mean, yeah. usually they, they disguise that pretty well, but... I imagine he probably wasn't going, you know, full force or anything. Yeah. But well, good sound effects, he's definitely it sounded good. Yeah. His hand is definitely making contact yeah. with Julie McLean's Shirley, cheeks. Shirley McLean. Shirley. What did I say? Julie? Julie? Yeah. Different different woman, I think. Who's Julie McLean? I don't know. Maybe she's listening. Hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Tweet at us. So... um. He slaps her around. He uses smelling salts. Oh, yeah. And then he forces a bunch of coffee down her throat. And then they, they kind of pick her up and make her walk around for a couple of hours. Right. And Dreyfus tells Baxter that she'll probably be okay, but it'll take about 48 hours for her to get it out all out of her system. Oh, my gosh. So he kind of... You know, goes about nursing her back to health. You know, she sleeps and they talk and they he tries to force her to play gin rummy. Uh, Mrs. Dreyfus reluctantly comes over with chicken noodle soup. Yeah. And sort of forces her to eat. Well, and she's, she's mad. They've got that great moment where Baxter asks for like, he's like, I just need to borrow a cup of sugar and some eggs and this and that and all these things. And then he explains to her and she's like, I won't do anything for you. But for her, I'll make her some breakfast or something yeah. like that. For you, I won't lift a finger. Yeah, that's what it is. For you, I won't lift a finger. But for her, I'll make her some breakfast. So she brings over chicken noodle soup and sort of force feeds uh, Fran. Right. And uh, she's like, I'll come back for the dishes later. He's like, I'll wash the dishes and bring them back. She's like, no, you'll break my dishes. I'll come back for them later. <laughs> so uh, so obviously he's kind of on the outs with everybody, his neighbors, his coworkers. And um, Fran seems to be irritated with him a little bit, too. Because she's, she's just in a funk. I'll say. And so, uh, Christmas happens. They're, they're at Christmas. Yep. And sort of through happenstance, Kirkby gets um, an appointment for the apartment for like 4.30 on Christmas. Oh, right. And he shows up with Sylvie in a, a bucket with champagne. Yeah. And Baxter kicks him out. I was like, no, you can't come in. You can't come in. And he's like, why not? And then Kirkby sees the dress, Fran's dress, hanging on the door. Yeah. And kind of sticks his head in and sees Fran laying in the bed. And so he knows that Fran's there. Right. And they work together, so he knows who Fran is. And uh, he pinched Fran on the butt. He was the, the one who pinched her on the butt in the elevator. And um, he essentially accidentally leaves the bucket of champagne with champagne 
there by accident. Right. So Baxter goes through and continues to take care of her. They walk around and they talk about various things. And she talks about, you know, being depressed and falling for this guy, this married man. And, uh, and he, Baxter, explains that one time he was going to kill himself also. Oh, yeah. Um, over a woman, a married woman, his best friend's wife. You see, so he bought a gun. A forty-five, An automatic forty-five, forty-five automatic. However you say it. Some of the best stopping power in handgun, uh, in handgunnery. Sure, I know nothing about guns, so I'll take your word for it. But he couldn't decide where to shoot himself, and he kind of does this like this funny kind of pantomime oh, about yeah. all the decisions in the head and in the mouth, in the heart. He points to his heart. Yeah, here, here, or here. Um, and so a cop showed up while he was trying to decide how he was going to kill himself. And so he tried to hide the gun hastily under his seat and accidentally shot himself in the knee. And and then he explains to her, the knee took a whole year to heal. Yeah. But I got over the girl in three weeks. I think if you were to accidentally shoot yourself in the knee with a forty-five. You probably lose that leg from the knee down. I mean, maybe he shot himself in the thigh. He doesn't exactly explain. He kind of points to that area. Right. Um, maybe he didn't shoot himself like in the kneecap. Maybe he shot himself in like the fleshy bit of the thigh or something. But Yeah, still, there's some there's some logic that could be tweaked there, I think. Yeah, but whatever. 1961. You know, it's a dark, sad story in what is otherwise a pretty well, and, and what fun he says, movie. And what he says to her is poignant in that. I got over the girl, and th- you know, it's, oh, I didn't didn't think I'd ever get over the girl, and so I th- was going to kill myself. Yeah. And it turns out, I got over her in three weeks. Right. So back at the office, um, the next day, right. Sheldrake fires his secretary for blabbing to Fran, which is not a wise move at all. Now I should say we did kind of gloss over the fact that. Um, Baxter does call Sheldrake at home on Christmas Day while Fran's asleep. That's right. And, and he Sheldrake says you have to come like, right over. Just take care, care of her for me. I can't leave here. That kind yeah. Of um, so before... Uh, so Sheldrake fires his secretary for blabbing to Fran. But before she leaves, the secretary listens on a call that Sheldrake makes to Baxter right. at Christmas. Where he convinces Fran... Um, Baxter convinces Fran to talk to Sheldrake while he's on the phone. And so they chat briefly, and and Baxter's like, okay, I'm going to go get some, go to the grocery store and get some food and some supplies, and I'll be back. And he leaves Fran to talk with Sheldrake, and they chat pretty briefly, and it's definitely another kind of disheartening conversation for Fran. Yeah. So Baxter goes out for groceries, and when he comes back, he smells gas, and the landlady's like, I was going to get the pass key. Because there's gas smell coming out of your apartment. And he right. runs in and he's like, Fran, Fran. And she's doing laundry. And it turns out she didn't realize you had to light the stove. She thought it automatically lit. So she wasn't trying to kill herself. But, Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, after the phone call yeah. that Sheldrake makes to Baxter, the secretary decides to make one last phone call at the office. All right. She calls Sheldrake's wife. <gasps> Mrs. Sheldrake. Yeah, and tells her that she wants to give her a history lesson. And, oh, is that uh, what she says to her? Eh, I can't remember if that's what she says to her or Fran, but she she alludes to that. There's something there's something you need to know. Basically. Yeah, I need to enlighten you to some truth. So she sets up a lunch meeting with the wife. Back at Baxter's, he decides he's going to make this nice dinner for him and Fran, and he he makes spaghetti using his patented 
tennis racket for a strainer method. <laughs> right. Which I which I love. He's also singing a song that is just one hundred percent gibberish. Gibberish sort of supposed it, to be Italian. But or... it sounds very Italian. Yeah. Meanwhile, while he's doing that, Fran's brother in law is worried about her because they haven't seen her in two days. Oh and he shows up at the office and finds Dobish and Kirkby. Right. And because they're irritated they can't use the apartment as much anymore, they tell the brother-in-law where Fran is. Because remember, Kirkby saw him. Yep, with his own eyes, with his own sleazy eyes. So the brother-in-law shows up at the apartment, interrupts dinner, and Baxter, as he's answering the door, is in mid-sentence and makes it sound like he took advantage of Fran in bed. Right, right. And the doctor shows up, too. And the doctor shows up, too. And I think there's... I think there's a bit of a of an allusion toward the idea that maybe Fran was being held against her will. Well, that maybe Fran was there to have an abortion. Oh, that's true. The there doctor was definitely like, hey, what kind of doctor? What's right. Wrong? Yeah. Right. Like, what do you mean? What they did to you or something like? That. Yeah. There's in in the dialogue, it became clear. Like, oh, this guy thinks. Yeah. She's uh, gotten rid of a baby. So the brother punches Baxter, and. And Fran leaves with him, and Dr. Dreyfus goes to check on the wound and tells Baxter basically that he deserved it. Yeah. Because everybody thinks that Baxter's an idiot, like a, a sex pot. Right. No good. They all think he's just running around with every woman in town. Yeah, and, and breaking hearts. Breaking hearts. And um, lighting farts. But Baxter says that it was worth it. True. Oh, but that's also a little creepy. Yeah, I mean, because he's saying he's it was worth it. Yeah, well, but he's it's saying creepy like to the outside person. Yeah, I mean, not to the audience. I don't think. Maybe not, but like basically, he's saying like, I'm enjoying the idea that people think I'm with a girl I like you. Don't think that's. I don't think it's with. I'm gonna. I'm gonna address that um, after we get done with. Uh, you can maybe remind me to this, but after we get done with the synopsis, okay, I, I, I want to address that. I'm not even sure if I can articulate it properly, but yeah, I'm no, try. I, I know what you're saying that he's Help getting some he's getting some kind of joy out of this miserable circumstance that they're in, yeah, including her um, attempting to kill herself when she shouldn't get any joy out of that. Right. I understand what you're saying. I, I don't think that's what he's. On the other hand, I guess when life hands you lemons, you know, make lemonade, <laughs> right? So. The next day, Baxter arrives back at work, and he decides he's going to tell Sheldrake all of his problems are over, and he's going to take Fran off of his hands. Yeah. So Sheldrake calls him up to the office, and when Baxter's in there, before he can get a word out, uh, Sheldrake tells him that he's uh, all of his problems are over, all of Baxter's problems are over, and he's going to take Fran off of Baxter's hands. Yeah. And it's because Sheldrake's wife has left him. So he's definitely getting that divorce. Oh, that's right. So he's gonna go. Um, he's gonna go see Fran and get make sure Fran's okay and get her back. Um, but as a reward, Baxter gets another promotion and a nicer office right next to Sheldrake's on the twenty seventh floor. Literally, like, walk through a secret door in Sheldrake's office, and yep. you're in Baxter's office. Exactly. Might be a little too close, if you ask me. Sure. And this is kind of the amazing thing, and it's kind of a true-to-life thing. Fran goes back to Sheldrake. She yep. gives him another shot. And, and that's very realistic. Um, not something you see in movies a lot. Nope. So she and Baxter are, are kind of both allowing something wrong to happen. 
um, him with the apartment and the promotion, and she with the relationship with Sheldrake. But they they choose to let it happen anyway. It's not like that it just happens or it's something against their will. Right. They, she chooses to go back to him. He chooses to accept the promotion. Yeah. So time carries on a little bit. New Year's Eve, Sheldrake demands the key to the apartment. And finally, Baxter, in a fit of being tired of it all, wanting to be a mensch, as um, his neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus says, be a good human being, says no more. And Sheldrake says, the key or lose your job. Be smart. So Baxter drops a key on the desk and heads back into his office. And he goes and kind of gathers his things in a little bit of a huff, closes drawers, grabs his coat. And Sheldrake comes in and he's like, hey, there was a mistake here. You, You accidentally gave me the wrong key. And Baxter says, it's the key to the executive washroom. I quit. Yeah. So he finally does the right thing. So Baxter goes home, and he's seen kind of packing up all of his belongings into boxes, including the infamous gun that he once shot himself with. Meanwhile, Fran and Sheldrake are once again at the Chinese restaurant waiting for the New Year's countdown. And she's clearly unhappy with being with Sheldrake. Yeah. And he tells Fran that they can't go to the apartment. And she's like, why? And he says that Baxter wouldn't give the key to him, especially if he was going to bring Fran right. to the apartment. And she just lights up. And she's like, he said that? And Sheldrake continues to explain that Baxter also quit his job, left his job, that it wasn't worth it. So she tells Sheldrake, that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't understand what that means. And, of course, that's something that... that uh, um, Baxter had told her earlier in his apartment was that's the way it crumbles cookie wise. Yeah. That's actually something that they use uh, sort of a phrasing that they use a lot in the film. Wise, yeah. October wise, this wise, that yeah. wise. Like what's his name? Kirkby. When, when he discovers Fran in Baxter's apartment, mm-hmm. he's like, Whoa, I see you really uh, like, you know, made out here pretty well or whatever. Kublik wise. And yeah. it's like, they literally just use the blank wise, like any yeah. chance they get. That's like a recurring, occurring phrasing. So the countdown happens. They're seeing Audling sign. Yeah. Um, Sheldrake kisses her on the forehead. And then he gets distracted. And he turns around and looks at people and then turns back to Fran. And she's gone. She's disappeared. She's ghosted him. And, and she is outside on the street, running down the street to Baxter's apartment, running all the way. Yeah. Big grin on her face. She's and in as, love, I think. And as she comes up the stairs to his apartment, she yeah. hears a loud bang from his room. <gasps> She beats on the door. She's like super, super worried. And eventually it opens. And Baxter is holding an overflowing champagne uh, bottle. Oh, thank God. The champagne that Mr. Kirkby had left earlier. Now we see the champagne bottle show up again um, the day after Christmas when he goes to make dinner for her. Right. It's on the table there as well. But again, they don't get to open it because the brother-in-law shows up. Yeah, and punches Baxter in the face twice. So Fran comes in and she sees um, that he's moving away. He's moving out. And she's like, where are you going? He's like, I don't know. Another town, another job. Who knows? Another neighborhood, maybe. Yeah. And um, he pours them both a glass of champagne. And they sit down to finally finish their game of gin rummy. That's right. That they started while she was sick in bed. On Christmas Day. And then he just, like, lets it all out of his mouth and is like, I'm in love with you. I think you're amazing. I think you're fantastic. Blah, blah, blah. And she says another very famous line from movie history. Shut up and deal. Yeah. And that's the final line of the film. 
There it is, the apartment. And then it says, the end. And then nothing. No closing credits. Nothing. Just it, the end. We so, do see the lion roar one more time. Do we? Okay. The MGM lion. So this is this is one of I, I like this movie a lot. Did you? Did yeah, you like the movie? I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really funny. I think it's sad at the same time. It's one of only three films in the history of the Academy Awards to win the top five. Wow! Which is best actor, best actress, best screenplay, best director, and best picture. Holy moly! There's only two other films that have, have done it. One was It Happened One Night, which is like I think 1934. Okay. And Silence of the Lambs, which I want to say was 1991-92 in that era. Oh, I thought that was 89. No, it was definitely in the 90s. Silence of the Lambs? Silence of the Lambs was definitely in the 90s. Definitely one in the 90s. I always have 89. 1991. That's what I said, right? Why do I always have 89 in my head for that movie? Uh I'll tell you why. Because Dr. Lecter put the idea there. So what I love about the movie is it's it's really funny and kind of absurd. Um, It's especially absurd in the way that the victims or the cheaters act like victims. Right. I should say. Um, but it kind of balances all the absurdity and the humor with sadness really, really well. And um, I think kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about what he was saying was worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, loneliness is kind of the, the key thing for Fran and Baxter both. They're constantly lonely I suppose that's true. Even though they have people in and out of their lives nonstop in the film. Well, Fran even lives with her sister and yeah. brother-in-law. And, and she works in an elevator where people are constantly coming in. And I think that's sort of a important, um, um, I guess, metaphor. Good point. And, um, and, and he is also constantly moving. He, he goes from one desk to... A different office to another office, not staying in his apartment, yeah, and then eventually moving out of his apartment at the end of the film. And so I think you know they, when they're with each other, they seem to get this comfort finally, this sort of like I can kind of relax, and um, but ultimately they're just kind of these cogs in this this machine of what sort of the company says is moral yeah you know, the, the company has its own because all of the all of the women with the exception of like marilyn monroe and margie yeah um, they're all people in the company all the men are from the company all the women are from the company that's true huh um so um and i think that's kind of that realization for baxter that's what was worth it that's why the punch was worth it is because right. he he finally didn't feel lonely for the first time and he got to spend two nights in his own home with somebody he cared about, with somebody that he, you know, so I think like, I didn't really see it as creepy. I saw it as something as, you know, he had an enlightenment. All right. All right. I think I could probably look at it from that perspective. Yeah. Something I thought was kind of interesting about the, the layout of the apartment, because the apartment is, I mean, the movie's called the apartment. It's super important. We don't spend a lot of time in the bedroom. We spend a lot of time in the living room. Yeah. Um, but the way they shot it, or the way the the apartment was built, the bedroom feels like it's in the center of the room, like it's uh, like if you were to look at the back wall, it almost feels like the like if you look at the frame, yeah, of, of how they shot it. it, yeah, um, you know, you've got the door, the front door on one side, and then the main, you know, the couch in the main apartment, and you know, off to the other side, there's a TV 
and a bookshelf but sort of the angle that they shoot it at it kind of comes in so the bedroom and sort of the kitchen yeah are kind of the center of the frame um which it shouldn't be that way it should, it, like logically the uh, part the bedroom probably shouldn't be right in the middle of, of the the bedroom should be in the middle of the apartment but they right. the way they shot it the angle makes it feel that way and i think that's kind of important because that's the thing that he's constantly trying to get to is his bed to his own room yeah and um, it's the thing that makes him resent the apartment. Yeah. Um, is that all these other men are coming into his apartment. Having and taking, sex in his bed. Well, and, to, and me, most importantly, just taking taking a piece of his apartment that's supposed to be his. Yeah. You know, you kind of you kind of view your bedroom as like a safe place. Like, yeah. this is this is my own private safe place. And, uh, and he loses that. He doesn't have that the whole movie. If you think about I it. I say not. We don't actually ever see him really sleeping getting a night's rest in his bed. We yeah, see him we never do. asleep for a moment and then he gets the phone call from Mr. Dobish. So he doesn't get That's a night's right. rest in there. And then we're not even sure that he necessarily was asleep. Um, I think the only time we see him really sleep in the room is when he's watching over Fran and he's sitting in a chair. Yeah. So um, he never gets to sleep in his own, in his own bed. Madness. So the, the idea that this room, this sort of unattainable thing for him... Fran's unattainable for him, and this room's sort of unattainable for him. Yeah. That's the center of of the set piece, essentially. Wow. I never thought of it that way, Wes. Well, there you go. I almost want to watch it again. Yeah. It's a, it's a great movie. I, I really I really like the movie. Um, it's pretty darn good. It's a little lengthy. Sure, two hours, five minutes. But it's pretty darn good. I don't good. find two hours lengthy, but... I usually don't. It was black and white. You should note. We should note that. Steve oh, yeah. is saying this. Steve is saying this that it's a little lengthy, but it was also a black and white it was film, also black which and he white. has a, a bias against. Well, my brain just doesn't work that well with black, know, black and white. However, this brings us to Steve's coffee countdown because mm-hmm. I was on, I don't know, maybe a cup and a half of coffee, yeah. a pretty good night's sleep. Yeah. Watching a black and white movie. Didn't fall asleep once. Didn't doze off yeah. at all. It's an engaging movie. It's very good. I agree. I do agree. So that was... The Apartment. That was The Apartment. Yeah. We did it. Should we talk about Annie Hall? We should talk about Annie Hall. I'm just going to check something real quick. All right, right you do that, and I will uh, kill some time by very slowly and deliberately introducing Annie Hall. Now, do you know? do you know the... The significance, the significance of the name Annie Hall. I don't. So I don't know why I'm shouting like that. The microphone's <laughs> right here. Um, uh, Annie Hall, directed by Woody Allen in nineteen. Well, it was released in nineteen seventy-seven, but very clearly in the movie he says uh, this is nineteen seventy-five, and yeah. then blah blah blah. Yeah. So Annie Hall, the significance. So Diane Keaton and Woody Allen were a thing. Yeah. Diane Keaton's real name. Is Diane Hall. Oh. And her nickname is Annie. Diane Annie. Wow. Annie I never did know that. So that is the, that is the significance of the, the, the character name. I knew I should have looked up more trivia about this movie. Because I'm sure there's tons. I'll, get you, I'll got you covered. Alright. So I'm going to get us started. And yeah. you, by all means, cover me. Because Annie Hall, there's a lot going on in this movie. It's very fast-paced. Yeah. There are tons and tons and tons of people. Uh, a lot of cameos. Lots of cameos. Lots of great little moments where he's just, you know, talking to the camera and then some extra in the scene will step forward and start talking to him person. about the same thing. Yeah. yeah. 
just all sorts of funny stuff. So is it the story of Annie Hall or is it the story of Alvy Singer? That's I, the question. I think it's the story of the two of them. Right, but I feel like Alvy definitely... I mean, yeah, he's, I mean he's narrating it. Show. Yeah, he's the star of the show. He's, but. you know, we dig into his past relationships, I feel like, more so than we do with Annie's past relationships. Sure. Um, anyway, so the movie starts with Woody Allen playing Alvy Singer, uh, delivering a monologue straight into camera, basically introducing himself to us. Um, I mean, what isn't the monologue about, you know? He goes on, he he points out that uh, as a kid, he grew up in a house that was literally under a roller coaster on on Coney Island, I guess it would have been. That's hilarious. Later in the movie, he brings Annie by that neighborhood and uh, mentions something about how uh, that was my house. It's now a pornographic equipment store. And I've often wondered since watching this movie, what exactly does he mean by pornographic equipment? Wouldn't that just be film equipment? I don't know. Or, or sex toys. Oh, marital aids? Yeah. Interesting. So maybe it's something like that. But I just thought that was a funny line. A pornographic was, equipment store. That was a real hotel. That building under the... Was it really? Under the, yeah. It, uh, That's terrifying. It was uh, It was torn down as well as that roller coaster was torn down in oh, 2000. Just 2000? Yeah. Holy smokes. Well... You may never. Well, I guess there are hotels in Vegas with roller coasters on them. So technically, you can still stay stay in a hotel with a roller coaster under it. Um, we have a real funny bit real early where he flashes back to being a kid at school. My favorite scene in the movie. And there's yeah, there's uh, you know, he's like, uh, there was so and so in class, and he's probably this and that. And then there was another so and so in class, and then the, well, the kids, kids get up. playing him. Yeah, yeah, the kids start standing up and saying, "Now I'm this." Now I'm that. Now I'm this other thing. And then it cuts to this one girl who, you know, he was supposed to be in what, seventh or second or third grade in this. Yeah. So these are really, really young kids. They all look like. Old in it. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, they all just, you know, little young looking like 1940s uh, dorky little kids. And this poor girl wearing these big thick glasses just looks into camera and she just goes, I'm into leather. And that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Where we are now in, in Woody Allen's history with the allegations that have come out, yeah. I'm into leather, might not be as funny anymore, yeah. but, you know, it's still a pretty instant laugh when you when you think about it. I, uh, I also like the kid that stood up and said, I used to be addicted to heroin, now I'm addicted to meth. Now I'm addicted to methadone. Methadone, yeah. Well, now I'm thing. addicted to methadone. No, methadone and meth are, are they very different? different things. Meth is methamphetamine. That's an okay. upper. That's speed, you know. Oh, now the, the viewsters are getting a look into the fact that I know nothing about drugs as well. And that's okay. Methadone is this thing that, uh, you know, it's basically a government-regulated chemical that when people are addicted to heroin... They send them to a methadone clinic so oh, that they, they can get addicted to that. So then they get addicted to that instead. And I'm really not sure how methadone makes one feel. Probably makes you feel quite a bit like you're on heroin. But uh, yeah, it's just a vicious cycle. Interesting. I used to be addicted to heroin. Now I'm addicted to methadone. If you've ever been addicted to heroin or methadone, please tweet at Stephen No Howood or uh, Movie Hippo or No Lag Gamers or, and tell us what the difference is. Or even better, let's find you some help. Well, sure. I have a feeling anybody listening to this who's also on Twitter, who also has the sense of humor to tweet at us about such a thing, sure, sure. is probably already in I'm a program. Just, you know, just for help. the sake of it, just saying, you know. I hear you, and I appreciate that too. Uh, early in the movie, we have a moment where uh, Alvy is, is waiting outside for Annie to show up on a date. Mm-hmm. And um, 
this sort of uh, street goon guy comes over and starts harassing him. He's like, hey, haven't you been on TV? Come on, I know you. You were on TV. You were on TV. And then he starts waving another person over, and they're bugging him. And he's like, well, yes, I'm Alvy Singer. I've been on Johnny Carson's show. So we learn, like, Alvy's a little bit famous. He's a comedian. Yeah. Recognizable. He's recognizable. And, uh, you know, as as hard as he is on himself, he's actually doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. And then Annie shows up. They go in to see a movie. They're two minutes late, so he just absolutely cannot go in. And he suggests that they should go across town uh, because there's a screening <laughs> of a World War II documentary that's four hours long that he could, quote-unquote, like, stand to watch again or something. Right. And, it's, and it's a four-hour-long, depressing documentary about Nazis. Mm-hmm. And he's totally down to see that just because this movie started two minutes ago. So I want to say two things. Yes. One, um, that's exactly how I feel when I go to the movies. I you don't do? Want, yeah. I don't even want to miss previews. I so, do hate missing the trailers. If I'm if I'm 10 minutes after the start time, and I know there's 20 minutes of trailers. If I'm 10 minutes late, I don't want to risk it. Um, I don't want to miss anything in the movie. And so when, when that that happened, Desi and I looked at each other, my wife and I, for I dropped those viewsters who don't know who Desi is. We looked at each other, and she just had this grin on her face because she knew that was. <laughs> and there were there were several other things in the movie where I definitely related to Alvy, um, yeah. Especially when it came to movies. But um, the other thing I wanted to say was the uh, conversation with uh, the two guys, yeah, the two Italian guys outside, um, both named Cheech. Yeah, he uh, says anyway. Yeah, uh, I'm he out here with two guys named Cheech. He references Cheech. that he was dealing with the cast of The Godfather, which is funny, right? Because Diane Keaton. Is in, is the, in the Godfather. Godfather. That's right, yeah. and this would have that would have come out before this. So this movie was released in '77. Uh, at the time, Woody Allen would have been 42 years old. Diane Keaton would have been 31. However, there's mention earlier on that it's 1975. So we're talking 29 and 40. He was 42 years old. That can't be right. In 1977, according to my math, uh, I looked it up, and he was born in. That means he's like 80 now. He was born in, uh, let me double check his birth date here. I can't imagine Woody Allen's 80, but I guess maybe that. Woody Allen born in 1935. So he's 80. He'll be 80 this uh, December 1st. Wow. Can you believe it? No idea. I had no idea. No, I mean, yeah, because you told me, but wow, that's crazy. Okay. So anyways, they, uh, oh, so they go to the other movie and they have to wait in line. Yes, and they're waiting in line, and there's this munch going on and on behind them about how he's a professor somewhere. He's talking to his date, this munch, and uh, he's talking about he's a professor of this, that, and the other thing, and just going on and on and on. And Alan keeps commenting to Annie and to us, the audience, about how he can't stand this guy, about how he's clearly trying to show off, hoping other people kind of are hearing all these great he things really he's saying. Know what he's talking about. Yeah, and so then Alan starts talking straight into the camera. And then this guy steps up and starts talking straight into why the camera. I, why, can't, yeah. why don't I have a voice? Why don't I have a voice? And then they proceed to, I forget who it was they were talking about. McLuhan? Sure. I uh, think yeah, was I the remember. name. And Alan's like, oh, you think you know everything about uh, McLuhan? And they walk off to one side and pull out uh, this McLuhan guy who's like standing behind like an easel with some announcement poster on it. And uh, that's just very silly. And there's plenty of stuff like that. You know nothing of my work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know nothing of my work. And he's like, if only life worked this way. Yeah. And it's true because that's the other thing that I relate to is, you know, when we go to to movies, obviously I'm very opinionated about film myself and I have my own own feelings. But I don't go about in public in a movie theater or in line for a movie and – 
pontificate about what I think about film or what I think is wrong or what it, especially typically I try not to talk bad about film in public. Yeah. Um, there are times where a discussion happens and somebody brings up a movie and you know, sure. we have a disagreement and maybe I don't like that film and I explain why I don't like it, but um, I can understand in, that in the method that this guy does it. I, I have experienced that so much, especially at like film festivals. Oh yeah. And it's just like, shut up. You don't, you think you know what you're talking right. about. And oftentimes they're just so off base. Right. Um, and I know film is subjective. I know that maybe I'm, I'm off base or sure. whatever, but it can happen. man, it seems like every time that I hear somebody talking too loudly about their going on and on and on about yeah. the meaning of something, they just like, they miss a point. They know nothing of your work. Yeah, so so I definitely related to uh, Albie in that scene as well. I think I have to admit that I also did. Yeah, I mean, it's that people that, that love movies, that go to the movies a lot, I think you experience that. Yeah. And it's just like, ugh. Just some idiot prattling on. It reminds me, um, I went to see uh, Three Kings back on opening night in 1999. Okay. And uh, there were these three knuckleheads sitting behind myself and my buddies. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, this was 1999, so I was just 20 years old. I was a pretty hot-headed – well, not all that. I was hot-headed for me. And these three chowderheads behind us just kept going on and on about all this different stuff. And my buddies and I were listening in on it and just, like, nudging each other every time we heard them say something wrong, you know, which was often. So then the movie starts – and Jamie Kennedy's character shows up, mm-hmm. and I start hearing one of them behind me going, "Oh, it's that dude from uh, oh, it's that dude from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. What's his name?" And now they were talking about Seth Green, yeah. And they and then I heard one of them go, "Oh yeah, that's uh, that's Scott Green. Yeah, that's Scott Green." And his buddies were like, "Yeah, yeah, that's definitely him." And I'm just like. At this point, are do these kids know that my buddies and I have been listening in on them, and now they're trying to say the dumbest thing they can think of, or are they really just that dumb that they don't even realize that not only is Scott Green not the guy in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right. but also that's not Seth Green on the screen that you're looking at. Yeah. So this, I felt very much like Albie Singer in that moment. Fortunately, the movie was already going, so I didn't bother talking through it, because they were doing that plenty. Yes. I watched a Seth Green movie yesterday, but I'll tell you that after the end. Which if movie? If you remind me. No, at the end, if you remind me. Let's, let's talk Annie Hall. All right. Uh, we should also point out, Annie Hall did not win the big five at the Oscars, but they won four. Yeah, they did win Best Picture, for sure. Best Picture. Best mm-hmm. Actress for Diane Keaton. Mm-hmm. Best Director for Woodrow Allen. And best screenplay. But yeah, he did not win actor. Did not win best actor. That also happened with Titanic. Um, DiCaprio did not, I don't think he even got nominated for... He did not get nominated. Um, Wasn't there a big stink that he was blowing off the Oscars because he hadn't been nominated? Yeah, And it's like, you know, everybody was like, well, everything else about your movie got nominated, so how about you show up and support? And he was being being a bit of a baby about it. Yeah, I agree. But, you know, <sighs> yeah, to each their own. You know, you work really hard on something and everybody gets recognized for it except for you. That's I'd, tough. I'd still go to the party I, and I have agree. fun. I agree. I understand. I understand the the feelings. Though. Yeah. You know, I can understand being hurt. But, yeah, so he, he wasn't even nominated. So that one also missed um, yeah. the big five. Well, dang it. Where were we here? All right. So another thing that happens in the movie is um, it, the movie jumps around through time. A lot. 
at, at times even you're not even sure where you're at. Right. Right. And like I think probably the first most I don't know, stark example of this is like Alan as Alvy Singer, he literally gets done talking about um meeting Annie and being with Annie and Annie 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 and then it just cuts to this scene of him in line for something else and he meets this girl Allison Puchnik. His first wife. His first wife. Well, she mentions it, Annie mentions it in the scene. You know, she she mentions that he had a problem with his first wife. Oh, okay. And then the next scene happens, but you don't know that you're jumping back in time right. because Woody Allen doesn't look any different. No. Um, the the only clue that he's in a different time and it's so long before you realize it yeah. is he's wearing a campaign button for uh, a candidate. For um, Adlai. Uh, Adlai Stevenson, yeah. yeah. Which would have predated where they were in, That's true. in time with Annie. So, But you don't think about that right. really. Like, you, don't... you almost think, oh, here he is just the next day just meeting some other woman all of a sudden. Right. Um, played by Carol Kane? Carol Kane, yeah. The lovely Carol also, Kane. Also, I think she won or was nominated for an Academy Award. Um... For this movie? No, not for this movie. Oh, for... Uh... I'll look it up. Well, you, License well, you, to Drive? Not License to Drive, nor The Princess Bride, I don't believe. Um, gosh, so much. It, it, it's it's hard to recap this movie. This is this is why I make notes to write it down, like the recap, not the not notes on the film. Yeah. Um. Well, let me talk about one of the things that happens early in the film. Is Please we meet, do. We meet his friend, um, uh, Max. Is that his friend's name? Well, he's the guy who always calls Alvy Max, calls it but Alvy also calls him Max. Yeah. So, so I his, guess his name must be Max. He has his actor friend, and um, the first time we meet him, yeah, we're, they're having a conversation about how um, Woody Allen is, is convinced that... Uh, oh, the guy's name is actually Rob. Rob, But okay. they keep calling each other Max. Yeah, strange. Um that uh, he's convinced that a uh, commentator is is anti-Semitic. Okay. It's a big theme for him, um, anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, he he kind of feels that with when he has dinner with Annie's parents. Oh, yeah. And, Which is uh, a great yeah, scene. With Gammy. <laughs> and, um, and again, later, uh, Max slash Rob tells him, he's like, he's like, you can't. Just because somebody doesn't agree with your point of view, or they have they um, they have a point of view that's counter to yours, you can't just accuse them of being anti-Semitic, right. right? You know. But the first time we meet them, they're having this conversation. It's this really great shot down a long sidewalk. They're all the way down at the end of the street, and they just walk to the ca- camera. Just hangs out there, yeah, until they get there. And when the camera finally, when they finally get to the camera, yeah. the camera just moves along with them yeah it's pretty awesome yeah i I think i might go home and watch this again tonight before bed because i intended to do that last night and instead i just fell asleep but this movie's it's just got so much to enjoy sure and to you know i don't even know how to say it like there's there's just so much going on and it's not like super confusing but it's almost like your brain can keep up with it while it's happening, but then trying to remember all that, good luck, watch it again. Sure. That's the point, I so, guess. So Carol say. Kane was nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role um, in a film that came out in 1976. 
Oh. So prior prior to the release of this film, she was nominated for an Academy Award. Do I get to guess? Sure, it's a movie I've never even heard of. A movie you've never even heard of. Carol Kane nominated for Best Actress or Supporting Actress? Best Actress. Best Actress, 1976. Carol Kane. Um, I'm trying not to have dead air. I have the plot. I can't think of the... Is it When a Stranger Calls? No. Was she even in that? Anyway. I don't know. It's called Hester Street. Hester Street. And it's a movie that takes place in 1896 about a Russian Jew emigrated to the United States three years earlier and has settled where many of his background have, name, have namely, on Hester Street, it says. Incredible. Okay, so... Hester moving, Street. So, Carol Kane, moving on. So, we meet his first wife. Yes, Alison Puchnik. Um, have they gone to the, the beach house yet? The, uh, with the lobsters? Have we gotten that? No, but I think that happens shortly after that. Mm-hmm. They're out at a beach house, having lobster. Um, the lobsters have escaped in the kitchen. They're running all around. Uh, poor uh, Diane Keaton, as Annie Hall, can't bring herself to put a living lobster into the pot of boiling water while it's still alive. And I get the feeling yeah, that this is a setup by Alvy. Okay. That um, he's sort of playing all right. at being afraid of the lobsters and afraid to pick up the lobsters and stuff. But then isn't he the one that dumps it straight in the pot then when she's afraid when she to hands do it? it to, she hands it to him, he takes the picture, and then he dumps it into the pot. But I think, yeah. he, I think he pretends to be afraid. You know, he's like, get a broom and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, and he's like, I don't want it to. He's like on a chair. I don't want to get it. You get it. You know, yeah. the chair in between him and the lobsters. Later in the film, the exact same thing happens with another girl. Exactly. He dates, and he sort of says, why does this always happen? But her response isn't what he's looking for. Right. She's like, I don't get Wait, What do you mean? You know, like... Is that, with, is that is with that with Shelley Duvall? Is this a joke? No, it's, uh, it's, it's with another character I don't a remember. Different lady. Um, <clears throat> but the point is that he sets up this lobster scenario, and he doesn't get what he wants out of this woman. So I get the feeling that maybe he set he either interesting he either it naturally happened with Annie, and he was trying to recreate that with this other woman. Yeah, or he set both things up because he's trying to test the women. Much Which, like Sheldrake always taking ladies to the same Chinese restaurant, sure. the same table, and what have. Except that I think he's. If it's a setup for Annie as well, yeah. I think he's trying to see what she would do and what she would say. All right. And she's so bubbly and kind of full of life, she grabs a camera and takes photos of it. Like, she documents it. Right. You know? And and, and interestingly, I don't know if you noticed, later in the film, um, there's a spider in the... Maybe we should... I should wait. Do you want to try and get to the spider? No, man. Jump one? to it. Because <laughs> this... Because you're lost. This, well, this movie just jumps around so yeah, much so that it's like... like... we're going to be jumping around. Yeah. So, um... So Annie and, and Alvy kind of go through makeup breakup quite a bit yeah. in the film. And um and there's sort of this this thing where Alvy is upset about this guy pontificating behind him. Yeah. But he's kind of constantly pontificating to Annie. And anybody willing to listen. And anyone willing to listen. But especially <laughs> Annie Annie gets the brunt of it because they spend a lot of time together and yeah. he sort of sees her as inferior to himself. Sure. Um, he's constantly giving her books that he thinks she needs to read and convincing her that she has to take community or college class, adult college classes. Right. And she's constantly going, it's because I'm not as smart as you and you, you look down on me and you're trying to make me into something else. There's that scene when it finally cuts to like their first ever meeting when it does the subtitles. 
Yeah. When they're on the roof. And the subtitles are basically her saying, oh, gosh, I'm not as smart as this guy. I try to keep up. Yeah. And him saying, ooh, I think she's not as smart as me. Should I back, should I back it but down? That sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. So they, they do these makeup and breakup things sort of over this. And at, at one point they break up and they, they split apartments. They moved in together and they have split apartments at, at this point. And he meets this girl, Shelly Duvall. That's when he meets Shelly Duvall. Okay. Um, and she is super weird in this, but also very young. <laughs> Aren't they going to see Maybe some she's sort a of journalist. a journalist? Yeah. They're but... going to see some like uh shaman or like a Is he a, is he a Krishna? Maybe I think a he's Krishna. a Krishna. Sure. So they're seeing some type of like either he's a Buddhist or a Krishna or some yeah. like a shaman or a uh... some sort of holy man. Yeah. Um, there he is coming out of the bathroom. Yeah, what he says. Um, and she kind of goes about you know goes about talking about rock shows like oh yeah I went to this and I went to this and you know now we're here at this thing and she what does she how does she refer to it splendiferous? I think splendiferous Something is the word. Yeah, um, splendiferous. So it's like she's sort of this, a this. Uh, she's very new agey. She's an ambassador for people to to. To other things, right? Yeah. She's a, she's a journalist, and she's using words like splendiferous yeah. about meeting this sacred man. Right. But he takes her home and sleeps with her anyways. And uh, um, Annie calls in the middle of the night. Oh, yes. And, he, and she's like, it's an emergency. I need you to come over right away. So he, he leaves Shelley Duvall, and, uh, and I don't think we see her again after that. I don't think we do. And so he gets to Annie's apartment. She's like, there's a spider. There's a giant spider. I need you to take care of this giant spider. And he's like, this is why you called me over? <laughs> so he's like, get me a magazine. And while she's getting a magazine, he notices there's a, a program for a rock concert. And I think there's like sort of like this, oh, man, is this what she's turning into now that we're not together? Like, I okay. wasn't around to educate her. So now she's turning into like this girl that I just banged in my apartment, uh... this, this rock star girl. Um, and uh, and so she gets this this magazine uh, I can't remember what the magazine is, but it's like kind of it's not time, but it's it's something uh, highly educated, something I would never read. All right. Um. Anyways, he's like, you read this now, and she's like, I like to hear all different points of view. All right. He he talks about media quite a bit in it. He talks about um, uh, dysentery. Um, he says he says uh, I heard dissent and and commentary are getting together to create dysentery. Oh, funny! Well, dissent is a, a was a really liberal magazine, and commentary was a very conservative magazine. So he okay. was sort of saying, "Well, they're finally these these two liberal and conservatives are finally coming together, and they've created dysentery, and that's right. that's what happens when two people compromise." So I guess um, so. That, I mean, that's kind of. I think what he's saying. But. Dys- dysentery is like a horrible yeah. like, diarrhea disease. I, I think that's exactly his point. <laughs> you don't so, want that. So anyway, so he gets to the magazine, he goes into the bathroom, and, and you hear uh, quite a, a hubbub yeah. in, the, uh, in the bathroom. And he well, says, no, doesn't it cut to him in there? Doesn't he have just, a tennis racket at this point? Oh, that's right. He, he, goes, he goes in the bathroom. And he's really, and he like, you just see him just... Like, He's like, it's much bigger than I thought. Yeah, it was. and he comes out and he's lost the tennis racket yeah. too. Like, like yeah. the spider's just that terrifying. He just kind of destroys the bathroom, knocks things over. Yeah, and he says he kills them. He says there were two of them. Yeah, and uh, and it turns out she's just missed him, and of course he's missed her. Um, but the reason I brought up the, it's a little thing. All that right, I loved about the movie. 
Okay. Sometimes it's the little things. She has all these photographs on on the wall, and he earlier in the film asks if she t- took photo took the photographs. Yeah, and she says, "Yeah." Um, there's a series of photographs of him with the lobsters. Oh, on the wall, right? And I thought that was a nice little touch because earlier in the film with the lobsters, like her response to this whole thing is, "I'm going to document. I'm going to take photos of it because it's funny." Yeah, you know. Whereas the other girl, when the other girl is in this scenario, she's like, "What? What is going on? Right? Is this a joke?" Right. She has virtually no response at all. Yeah. So, um, so where do we go from here? Uh, where does it he, go to? He encourages her to, uh, to she, follow her singing career. Yes. She wants to be a singer. He is Alvy singer. She has the one bad gig and she's really hard on herself about it. But then she goes and has a pretty good gig where she sings. Um, what was the song she sang? Seems like old times. Yeah. And after that gig, they're at the bar, and she gets approached by... Uh, Tony? Is his name Tony? He's well, played by... Played by Paul Simon, whoever yeah. he is. Uh, let's Who's see. Who's also nominated Tony for Lacey, Award. yes. Played by Paul Simon. Or has won. He's won an Academy Either Award? Either won or was nominated for an Academy Award. Probably for music. Yeah. Let's, let's look it up. Well, so oh, we, yeah. I bet uh, probably for something with The Graduate, probably. I, so, Tony Lacey, you looked that up. Tony Lacey approaches her. He's got these two gorgeous women with him and another dude. And he's like, hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm, I'm out from California. He's basically a, 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 some sort of entertainment mogul, probably a record executive. He's basically saying like, hey, I could pretty much kickstart your career if you guys want to come to this party. Now, there's a bit of a miscommunication because I feel like Tony is clearly inviting Annie and Alvy to come along to the party. Cause he even says, Oh, I recognize you, Alvy. Like, you know, like, uh, we've never met, but I really love your work. I think he says we'd, we'd love to have you both. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Alvy seems to think that he's just trying to get Annie away from him for the night. And so he kind of s- sabotages the situation. He's like, well, no, remember we've got the thing. And Annie plays along with him. Uh, but she wants to go. She clearly wants to go. And I think she should have just been like, no, clown. We're going to go to this party and have fun. Right. And um, so in a way, not in a way, that clearly kind of builds a bit of resentment for Alvy in her mind. Yeah. Um, they wind up later in California. And so they go to a party at Tony's house. And <laughs> there's that weird bit with the woman in white. And... Uh, and 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 Alvy's got his buddy Rob out there with him too. Rob desperately wants to get the woman. Yeah, pants. yeah. And Rob's also wearing all white. There's just oh, I can't even remember what happens from there. But then um, he and 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 Annie wind up in like Tony's screening room. Yeah. And there's Jeff Goldblum on the telephone for some reason. Jeff Goldblum <laughs> just, makes a cameo. Yeah. yeah. And what's it? What is it? He's calling and he's like he says something like. Uh, Oh, what is he saying to the person on the other end of the phone? He's just like, well, did you find my crystal or something like that? I remember it just being some really weird new yeah. wavy. Yeah, it's like, very like, you... this is what this is how New Yorker CLA. Yeah. Like, very. Very funny. But I, I just have to watch it again. I know there's so much that happened in that scene, and I'm only skimming the surface of it right now. Sure. So then what else happens in LA? Oh, he's supposed to give an award. And he gets sick. On a TV show. That's but he's the party, but yeah. But is he sick? Because he's like, oh, I feel so sick and blah, blah, blah. And a doctor like comes to visit the him chicken. in the hotel. And he's like, just try to eat some of this chicken. See if you can keep this down. 
So she's like, oh, well, I just talked to the people at the show and they say it's okay. They're going to get somebody else to present the award. And he's like, oh, gosh, now I don't even get to be on TV. And at this point, he starts eating the chicken. Yeah. And he's like, oh, this is terrific. I'm sick and I don't even get to be on TV, which is the whole reason. I Is there maybe some pepper I could put on this or something? Yeah, he's like, salt. <laughs> yeah now he's trying to, like, zhuzh up the, the chicken. And he eats it. But, I mean, right. I, I think, you know... I don't know the the commentary on that. You know the the sickening of of how fake Hollywood is. Yeah. Um, you know he gets to Hollywood and he goes to his friend Rob. His friend Rob is on a, a sitcom, right? A TV series, and they're using a laugh track, and he finds it so um, disingenuous that they're um, that they're putting fake laughter in. It's right. Like, nobody's really laughing at this joke. It's not right. It's immoral. Right. But um, Rob's like, oh, give that a really, really big laugh right there. Yeah, and then, you know, the party, there's a lot of fake stuff going on, and um, and they are faking it through their relationship. Mm. So, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, you know, thinking about it, probably the the flight to, to L.A. makes him sick. Okay. And it makes him sick the second time he goes, too, he says. Yeah. Um, but I think it's all a fake. I think everything's yeah, I think fake it's... about it, and I think that's a commentary on the on the fakeness of of California and huh. and their relationship. Um, their relationship is interesting because it, it went from being you know uh, they were very interested in each other to the point where he was willing to get in a car with her despite the fact that she <laughs> yeah. drives like a maniac. Yeah, um, I love the scene in Albie. the car. And he's looking around and he's like talking. He's sort of talking about like, oh, you haven't uh, cleaned this in a while, huh? Is, is this a sandwich? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, can I ask you something? Is this a sandwich? And he pulls up like a half-eaten sandwich that was yeah. just laying in the car. It's pretty great. And then there's also the bit in the car with her brother uh, when yeah. he goes. So he goes to her family's place for Easter. And there's this really great moment where at dinner they basically they split the screen. So we're seeing the dinner that he's having with Annie's family at Easter, and then it's split with his childhood. Uh, well, it it like wouldn't have been dinner. Easter dinner. I guess it would have been maybe Passover. Yeah, it was some. Yeah, because but having dinner with his family as a child, and the two families are inadvertently communicating through the scene. Yeah, but basically, it's like Annie's mom is asking Alvy's question, and then on the other side of the screen is Alvy. Remembering the way his father would have answered those questions. Yeah, what do you, and it's what do you pretty do hilarious. For, what do you do for the holidays? Oh, we starve. <laughs> yeah, we starve. Yeah, that's such a great scene. And then it cuts to um, uh, Annie's brother is played by Christopher Walken. This was pre-Deer Hunter. But so Walken-y. So he was not yet at Oscar winner Christopher Walken yet. He was really young, but very um, Walken-y. Very Walken-y. And so he's at dinner, and he has maybe one line or so at dinner. But then later, Alvy wanders past his bedroom and he starts talking to Alvy and he says like sometimes can, can I make a confession sure that's how it starts no that's how it starts oh yeah yeah can I make a can confession? I make a confession and he says like uh sometimes when I'm driving at night I see headlights coming toward me and he basically long story short of it is he says I think about just jerking the wheel and smashing into that other car and then the very next scene is blah, 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 we have to get back to the airport. And the dad's like, oh, it's fine. Your brother will drive yeah, you. I'm, I'm still drinking this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he's like, your brother will drive you. And then it just cuts to walking behind the wheel. <laughs> Diane Keaton tucked in next to him. Woody, Woody Allen right on the other side of her. And he's just like giving walk and he's just glaring at him from the side. 
just expecting him any minute to drive them into oncoming traffic or maybe off a bridge or who knows what. But it's so hilarious. Yeah. Terrifying and hilarious. Yeah. So so I guess what I was saying was um you know, I think I think initially like, you know, he was willing to get in a car with her and she was willing to take the classes and read the books and they, you know, despite the arguments over movies, I think that initially they were really into each other. They they went to the park and um sat and people watched and oh, made right. up stories and she buys into that. Like he's he starts out and it's almost a little mean spirited at first. Yeah. Um and it's completely mean spirited yeah, actually. Yeah. He's uh, making fun of strangers yeah. who have absolutely no idea who he is. Um and uh and eventually she like buys into it because she's she's willing to learn about this guy and because she's into him. Yeah. Um and then at the end of the film, by the end of the film it's all very fake. But something really interesting about that scene is the last guy is he goes and here's the winner of the Truman Capote lookalike. Right. Really Truman Capote. Oh, was it really yeah, him? Exactly That's Truman incredible. Capote. Um, But, yeah, so I think, like, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying was I think, you know, initially they're really into each other and really trying to do something real. Right. And, you know, she goes to go see an analyst. Right. And that um, was all his idea, and that was right? all his idea. Um, and and the probably analyst. the downfall of their relationship. Sure. Is, is, is the beginning of that. That's actually another really great scene that they did split screen. And, uh, oh yes. So you're seeing them both talk about sort of the same thing and almost even saying the same thing, but with different meanings. So yeah, we hardly ever have sex anymore. I think we only had three sex three times this week. And she says he's, it's nonstop sex. We've had sex three times this week. Right. So it's like just this like difference in, in the same, in different perspectives about the same thing. Right. Um, but I loved the split screen. It's, it was actually built on set. It wasn't. It wasn't two different cameras. It was oh, one cool. camera, um, and they just put a divider up in between the two set pieces and shot the th- same thing at the same time. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, I really like that. That's very awesome. It's a cool old school technique that I like. So same set. Yes. So they make up, break up, make up, break up. Um, she stays in L.A. Right. Or moves to L.A. And he stays in New York. And starts writing plays. And starts, well, he doesn't really write the play until after he goes to see her again. Yeah, I guess that's true. That one last time in L.A. So he flies back out because he misses her and he wants to bring her back to New York, right? Yeah. So he goes and they have, um, uh, he goes to sit down and he orders like uh, mashed yeast. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Can I have like a, a, what was it? Some kind of vegetable and the mashed yeast, please. So again, <laughs> again, sort of the fakeness and the silliness of of L.A. Yeah. Um, if you've ever been to L.A. and been to a raw food restaurant, then you understand. Um, I'm sure. I mean, there's raw food restaurants other places, but it's very popular right. in L.A. Um, and she comes and sits down for like two seconds with him, and he tries to convince her to come back, and she essentially says, "No, I like it here." Yeah. What's so great about New York? Um, and uh, that's they're having they're having breakfast uh on the sunset strip right it's now the standard hotel that hotel oh yeah but uh wow um so he ends up going back to new york and writing plays as you said and he um the the scene that we see from the end of the play is the exact same conversation he has with her outside that restaurant so he's dropping stuff outside yes 
his exact same exact same dialogue, except it ends with her saying, "Of course, I'm going to come back right. to work with you." And he's like, "You know, it's my first play." Yeah, what do you expect? It's my first play. Of course, I'm going to write a happy ending. Yeah. Um, and uh, we find out that they saw each other one other time after that. They were both with other people. All right. Did you see? Could you tell who the woman was that he was dating? Hang on, let me when try they, to think when back. They saw each other. They bumped into each other. Mm, I feel like they I was into each other outside the the Nazi documentary. Right, she was taking her new boyfriend to it, and he was he was taking or coming out of it with uh, his new girlfriend. So, does that suggest that he has essentially turned yeah, Annie so. into himself? I think so. Cool, but also aww. super sad. But the, um, who was he with? It was the first film appearance of Sigourney Weaver. Really? Yeah. I did not recognize her then. I, I didn't either. I learned that after reading Wow. That I'm on a, I want to look that photograph up. Right? Um, so it, it kind of ends in sort of this um, unceremonious way. Yeah. Um, the thing that I was, I think, probably the most disappointed. I mean, okay, so I thought the movie was great. Or, I should say, I thought the movie was well made. Sure, I did not love this movie. You um, didn't. It's not my kind of film. I am not into movies with unlikable characters. I find Alvi, for the most part, unlikable. Even though I see myself, I think probably everybody sees a little bit of themselves in Alvi. Sure. Um, overall, I think he's kind of detestable in a lot of ways. Um, and so I don't. I I have a hard time watching a movie where the main character is just a, a bad human being in they don't really redeem themselves in any way. I understand. And I I don't feel like he, he really does Uh, feel free to disagree with me on Twitter and let me know why you think he redeems himself. But, um, the thing about Alvi that I, I dislike the most is he has this relationship and his need to like be with this woman and at the same time change her. He never tells her that he loves her anywhere in the film. He but doesn't, he, huh? But he forces no, her. But he, he must. No, he doesn't. He, but he forces her to say it to him. Wow. He says, I, 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 I can't describe how I feel about you. Yeah. He never actually says the words I love you to her in the film. Huh. But he makes her say it to him. And um, it's this, like, kind of just this over-controlling um, one-sidedness that I just don't. I, I just can't get on board with. I, have I can understand that. So, so that's how I felt. You tell me how you felt about the movie. I mean, I almost didn't want to like it, mm-hmm. you know, based on on recent allegations toward Woody Allen. Sure. Um, but you know, there's also a lot of talk, specifically about these recent allegations, where it's like separate the art from the artist. You know. Yeah. Like, just because this stuff is coming out about him recently, that doesn't make his previous movies any worse. Less artful. Right. And so, I tried to watch it through that lens, and I enjoyed it a lot. Like, I think it's very funny. Um, Maybe I'm a fan of unlikable characters, I don't know. Because you weren't a big fan of... uh, Jim Dodge in uh, Career Opportunities either. And Correct. I love Jim Dodge. Um, 
But yeah, I enjoyed Annie Hall a lot. One of my roommates watched it with me. He was cracking up. He was like, I can't believe I never watched this earlier. He was totally... Now, he also... There were a lot of funny moments, don't get me wrong. He also got extremely stoned and fell asleep about 30 minutes in. <laughs> Fair enough, okay. But what he saw, he loved. Um, and so, yeah, I gotta say, like, you know, I don't. we don't give thumbs up or stars or any of that. Yeah. But I can absolutely see why Annie Hall is revered the way it sure. is, why it won as many awards as it did. Yeah. Uh... And I, I think it's safe to say it's Woody Allen's greatest movie. It's interesting because I like other Woody Allen movies better. Yeah. Um, uh, so generally, the, the, my two favorite Woody Allen movies don't have Woody Allen in them. Okay. Um, my, but I think I think Manhattan Murder Mystery is is really really good. All right. Um, interestingly. That one, um, this movie, Annie Hall, had a murder subplot in it, yeah. and they removed it because it was too distracting to the film, huh. and it became Manhattan Murder Mystery. Oh, that's cool. But my two favorites are Midnight in Paris. All right. Which I like a lot. I like that movie a lot. Um, I thought great performances. It's shot really well. Um, it's, <clears> a, it's a fun story, sort of got a time travel thing, which I'm a sucker for time travel. Yeah. Um, but my favorite Woody Allen film, I think, is Bullets Over Broadway with John Cusack. I have not seen that since the year it came out. And, and I, East and, uh, I, I know Fertilli. I should watch it again. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so good. Um, and it's it's absolutely my favorite one. And I would watch that one again easily before I'd watch Annie Hall again. Yeah. Did he also do Radio Days? Do you remember Radio Days? Radio Days. I do remember Radio Days. I don't remember if that's Woody Allen or not. I feel like it must be, but at the same time, it, it kind of feels like it should be. Yeah. Was it Radio Days a prequel or a sequel to something? <clears throat> well, um, if I'm not mistaken, it was... Um, was it about this character? Seth Green as a young Woody Allen. But then again, I haven't seen it since I was a very young child. So, so I it, is, it is a Woody Allen movie. Okay. Yeah, and I think it was basically Seth Green as a young Woody Allen, like living in Brooklyn during World War II and just kind of the various adventures that uh, you know a young a young man would have in yeah, such a time. I feel like there's another one, another one of these that was a prequel even to that. That was about his father. About his father. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to type in Radio Days prequel into Google real quick. Sorry, right. sorry, Vusters. Um, hey, man, they're having just as much fun listening as we are talking. Once upon a time, many years ago, two burglars broke into a neighbor's house in Rockaway. Mr. and Mrs. Needleman had gone to a movie and the following events occurred. No, and that's nothing. the end of the quote. Got nothing here. All right, well, apparently, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm thinking of a different, I'm probably thinking of a different film. Um, but a prequel uh, to Radio Days. Well, it's probably not that. Then, Are you sure you're not maybe confusing uh, the Neil Simon uh, Brighton Beach, Biloxi Blues, and all that sort of? Well, stuff? Brighton Beach came before, takes place before, but it's the same character, right? Now, the, now the one I'm thinking of is specifically the, sort of this era, and then they did a prequel that was about his father. Wow, um, as a young man. What could that have been? But uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll maybe I'll try and figure it out before motorcycle outside. I'll say maybe I'll try and figure it out before the next podcast. But oh, we should talk about the next podcast. Do you want to draw? Do you want to draw from the Muppet bucket? We should draw from the Muppet bucket. You know what's gonna be sad is this is gonna happen where you're gonna draw a movie that I love that I'm really excited to watch, and then I'm gonna draw Dune, and we're gonna put the movie that I love off for a week. And I'm gonna be upset about that. You know that, right? Maybe, but we're only going to put it off for one week. And if it's a movie you love, that means you've already seen it. 
Yeah, but it's, I'm excited to show you. Well, never seen it. okay, but I mean, I'm a very patient guy, so it's like if but we I'm have not. to put it off for one week. But if I'm, if we'll you're be the patient, fine. So if you're the patient one, and I'm not, maybe we should put Dune off for a week. No. See, not that patient, <laughs> are you? <clears throat> because you really, as an appreciator of science fictiony stuff, you've got to watch Hodorowski's Dune, and you've got to watch Dune by David Lynch. What did you draw? I don't know. It's folded in half. And now it's upside down. Over the edge. Over? Over the edge. The edge. I don't even remember that. Um, I'm pretty sure this is over the edge. I'm pretty sure this was one of my suggestions. Uh, it's from, I believe, the late 70s or maybe the very early 80s. It's got about a 15-year-old Matt Dillon in it, it and some other trouble-making kids. Yeah. Uh, and it's a... Is this a rollerblading movie? No. No, okay. No, that's Airborne. <laughs> oh, Airborne's going to be fun, too. Uh, over the Edge. Wow. So we got to find Over the Edge somewhere. Oh, he's on a skateboard. I saw kids with feet and wheels, but I couldn't oh. see the whole skateboard. Okay. All right. Here we go. Are you ready? Dune, 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 Dr. Zhivago. Wow. Not... A movie I'm, and you know, it's funny, all these old classic movies, I'm like, ah, I don't really want to watch them, but we're going to force ourselves to. So far, we've, we've had pretty good luck. I think we've enjoyed the movies that we didn't want to watch. True. So we're going to watch Dr. Zhivago. Holy moly. That's a long movie. Is it? How long is it? I think it's a... Have you seen it? No, but I can remember working in video stores and it was always one of those, you know, two tape VHS deals. Well, that doesn't mean that much. Okay. That means it's a long movie, sir. Are you checking out the running time right now? Yes, I am. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Zhivago. Three hours, 17 minutes. Ooh. That is nothing. That is, that's like a Titanic. That's just like watching Titanic. It's like three hours. Nothing. I've only bothered to watch Titanic once. Oh, I saw it many times in the theater. Did you? Yeah, I like, uh, I like the... Well, you're not alone. I Apparently, like the, a lot of people do. I like the history of that. I sure. Was, I was already uh, predisposed. Um, I had... Uh, Read the book A Night to Remember, which was like a minute by minute account of oh the my Titanic. God. Um, so I was already sort of a fan. All right. Of the uh, not a fan of the disaster, but you know, I was curious about the disaster already. Yeah. So, um, and there's actually a lot of things from that minute by minute account from survivors that's in James Cameron's Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of like little touches that they tried to. Obviously, it's a it's a fictional story that takes place in a real event and a right. lot of those a lot of the things that happen in the background are pieces of the real event they wow think they did a pretty good job with it so um, i uh i got to meet the uh the irish band from titanic yeah yeah they played at my college a few well many years ago at this point and they were outstanding but um but then they uh drowned you know in a freezing cold uh, arctic cruise so what can you do no i'm kidding they're hopefully alive and well yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, ne I never bothered to see Titanic in the theater. And then one day it came on HBO and, uh, I think I was on, I think it was on Christmas break from college and I was just like, you know what? It's literally falling into my lap. I guess I'll watch it. And I watched it and I cried a little mm -hmm. and I said, that's enough. Have you ever, have you ever read the short story, um, the wreck of the Titan? No. So there's this there's this really interesting um, short story about this fictional ship called the Titan. The Titan. Let me let me tell you about some. Let me read you some of the similarities here. Uh, 
they were. Uh oh. The Titan was about oh, eight hundred feet long. Good lord. The Titanic was eight hundred eighty-two <clears throat> feet, so pretty close, pretty similar. Eight hundred eighty-two feet. Yep. Um, the Titan went. The Titan went uh, twenty-five knots. That was its speed. High All right. Speed. The Titanic was twenty-two and a half, so again, pretty close. Holy bajangles! They were both uh, triple screw propellers. Um, they were both described as unsinkable. Mm-hmm. Um, the Titan was uh, the largest craft afloat, and the greatest of the works of men. They referred to it, and it was deemed practically unsinkable. So, is there a chance that uh, you know whoever got the idea to build the Titanic had been greatly influenced by this? Short story? Yeah, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Um, the, the Titan wrecks on an iceberg. Oh. So, now, the, boy. yeah, so I don't know if that would be uh, smart. I'm assuming this short story was written well before the this, Titanic was this built. This story right? was written. In um, 1403. No, not quite that old. Uh, 1898. Wow. So definitely before the Titanic was built. We're talking uh, when the Titanic sunk in what, 1912? Yeah. So we're talking about 14-ish years. Holy moly. So the Titanic had uh, 16 lifeboats plus four folding lifeboats, basically. Right. So 20. The Titan carried, quote, as few as the law would allow, Ooh. which was 24. Uh, so again, similarity there. They both struck an iceberg. Um the Titanic sank more than half of her 2,200 passengers. Oh, my gosh. And died. The Titan yeah. sank, and more than half of her 2,500 passengers drowned. So, again, really, really similar. That's um, deranged. Yeah. And then the, that's actually a really small part of the Titan story. The The Titan story ends... Um, Ends up with a guy kind of like throwing a shipwreck into the sea, shipwrecked and fighting polar bears. Oh, uh, that would be the worst way to be shipwrecked in the Arctic and having to fight polar bears. That's you know horror icing on the nightmare cake. Sure, but to be sure, you know, usually you think shipwreck. It's like oh, you're down somewhere near the equator. At least you're warm. For crying out loud, at least you're warm. But to be shipwrecked in the Arctic, no thanks. Sure. Captain, every captain. <laughs> Fair enough. Should we wrap it up? We should wrap it up, man. <laughs> we talked about books. We should not be supposed to talk about books, but no. it did relate to a movie. So. But that's okay. Because in a way, our title was inspired by a book by Peter Benchley. Sure. No, so, you're a liar. Well, I mean, thanks for listening to uh, Indiana Jaws. And uh, I'm just going to hit stop right now. And then uh, no. everybody will think it's still called Indiana and Jaws. It's not what's going to happen. Okay. So thank you for listening to View the Right Thing. Oh, that's right. Really appreciate all the listeners and uh, the feedback we've been getting from people on Twitter and Facebook. It's fun. Keep it up. We like the interaction. Uh, means a lot to us. So do it. Uh, so you can tweet at Movie Hippo. At Steve and Noho Wood, at No Lag Gamers, or hit us up on Facebook. We do have a No Lag um, Facebook account. Yes. Well. So, um, anyways, we will see you in two weeks for for Over the Edge and Doctor Zhivago. In the meantime, Bon Cinema.